Chapter Eleven of Mars is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Eleven. Right at this point, there has to be a shift in the way I've been recording events as they happened, because what happened next took place elsewhere, while I was flat on my back in the hospital. By what happened next. I mean, to me and Joan personally, and to Commander Littlefield, and the Martian Colonization Board, and everything I'd come to Mars to take cognizance of, and do my best to change for the better. I know, I know. Ten million separate events are taking place all the time on Earth and on Mars, and by no stretch of the imagination could they be thought of as an immediate part of this record. But when the threads all start to draw together and tighten about you in a destiny-altering way, you have to keep the time sequence in order and record developments as they take place. Otherwise, when they become of immediate concern later on, the entire picture will seem out of focus. The frame will start lengthening out, and the people in the picture will be out of kelter also, and scattered all over the landscape. The only way you can keep them sharply in focus is to record what happens to them when it happens. It shouldn't be too difficult, because there's a seeing eye that hovers over the Mars colony day and night. The big time-space eye that records everything that takes place in the universe, so that nothing is ever really lost beyond recapture. The past, the present, and the future keep flickering, in a backward-forward way, across that immense retina, and some day a technique may be developed for running history off in reverse, and you'll see events that took place thousands of years ago, as if they were happening today on a lighted screen. So, let's look through that big eye straight down at the Mars colony, you and I together. And remember, in this particular instance, we won't need a history-reversing gimmick at all, because what we'll see and hear is now. It starts as a two-person conversation. John, I'm frightened. What if the insulation isn't absolutely foolproof? What if one of those Endicott fuel containers isn't shielded in just the right way? Suppose the radioactive stuff inside builds up to what the nuclear physicists call critical mass, and there's an atomic explosion. Blow-ups have happened even in the Endicott laboratories under the strictest kind of supervision. Now look, there's not the slightest danger. Do you think for one moment Endicott would take that big a risk, even though Wendell has the entire combine backed into a corner? They'd take any kind of risk now, because they have no choice, John. If you were going to give me another baby, you'd have given me fair warning. I could have steeled myself to endure the harshness and unfairness of it. But when you bring death home with you... The woman had been very pretty once. You could see that just by glancing at her. But now her face had a drawn, haggard look, and her pallor was more than pronounced. It verged on grayness. Her hair was thinning and turning white, and only her eyes remained lustrous, truly alive as if all that remained of the woman she had once been had been drawn to a focus in the gaze she was training on her husband in desperate appeal. Why did you do it, John? 
You're not just endangering your life and mine. If we didn't have four children, maybe I wouldn't be talking this way. I told you I was forced into it, didn't I? Wendell is calling Endicott's bluff. We can no longer go on buying Endicott fuel cylinders openly on margin, hundreds of them, and letting all of them stay in Wendell's custody because we don't really own them at all. The price goes up or the price goes down, and we sell out and buy again. And we're supposed to own four-fifths of the Endicott Combine. But there's not a single colonist who owns the equivalent of four or five cylinders outright. I don't own these six cylinders, but I had to bring them home with me. I just don't understand why. It's too complicated for me. A nuclear explosion would be much easier for me to understand. All right, I'll go over it again, but try to listen more carefully this time. Before this big cutthroat war started, only one man suspected that one of the two competing combines might try to sell its fluid property to the colonists on margin. They were supposed to cooperate, not compete, because it was thought that Wendell couldn't possibly keep its nuclear generators operating without fuel. It can't, of course, but only one man suspected that Endicott might refuse to be dwarfed by Wendell in a sharp practice duel and fight to stay big and powerful by letting the colonists buy and sell fuel on speculation. That would put colonists right in the middle, don't you see? Yes, I do, the woman who had once been almost beautiful said. Thank you for giving me credit for having that much intelligence. You seem to forget that I have a fairly good memory, too. We've gone over this a hundred times. Sure we have, but it doesn't seem to have made too deep an impression on you. You can sum it all up by saying that on paper, from day to day, it's the colonists who now own the Endicott Combine, or most of it. So it is the colonists who are carrying the battle directly to Wendell, fighting for their right to go on wildcatting, to get rich overnight, or, or end up pauperized. It's wildcatting in a sense, just as it was when oil, instead of atomic fuel, was the big prize to be fought over Earthside. When a colonist buys Endicott fuel cylinders on margin, it's practically the same as if he were digging an oil well in his own backyard. Go on, John, the woman said wearily. There's that much uncertainty in it, don't you see? And he's really doing it entirely single-handed, and on his own because he's digging in what is practically a paper graveyard in some respects, unless he's one of the lucky ones. Endicott keeps the fuel. It doesn't go out of their hands. But Wendell still has to buy it directly from the colonists, who are supposed to own it, and the price fluctuations keep Wendell from becoming all-powerful and Endicott from going under or being dwarfed. In the main... It's the colonists who have most to gain by keeping Endicott powerful and solvent, although the battle lines aren't so tightly drawn that it doesn't become profitable at times to go over to the Wendell side. There's a lot of sniping between the lines. I know all that, John. Well, here's what it all boils down to, what you didn't seem to grasp. You asked me why I brought these six cylinders home. It's because of the one man who did suspect right from the first, and when the charters were drawn up, that a war of this kind might be waged. I can't even tell you his name. He was probably a minor legal expert or 
auditor employed by the board who had shrewd prophetic gifts, enough foresight at least, to insert in fine print in both of the charters a provision that Wendell is now using to call Endicott's bluff. That provision doesn't say that Endicott can't sell some of their fluid assets on margin, but it sets a limit to that kind of speculative buying and selling. The same limit would apply to Wendell, but Wendell has no fluid assets to sell on margin, and it can't very well break up its generators and big transmission lines and sell them to the colonists piecemeal, even on margin. It wouldn't look right, because you can't pretend that a fragment of a pipe that is still being operated by a combine is a speculative commodity that has passed into other hands and is subject to day-to-day -day fluctuations. If you want to think of fluid assets as simply a share in a combine's profits, that's another matter. But I'm not talking about that kind of fluid asset. Endicott has been selling to the colonists in a literal sense, movable fluid assets. And in fine print, in the Endicott Charter, it says that Endicott can only sell about a third of its fuel cylinders on margin. The others have to be purchased outright and carried home and held by the purchaser until the price is right and he can dispose of them at a profit or sell at a loss as property. But you say you didn't buy these cylinders outright. How could you have done that? the woman protested. Just one cylinder would cost a third of a million dollars. Naturally, I didn't buy them outright. I bought them on margin. But Wendell can't prove that. Endicott is covering up for me, and because I have brought them home and can slap my hand on the cool metal and tell Wendell to go to hell if they try to dispute my ownership, Endicott still has a chance to come out on top. Wendell is calling Endicott's bluff, sure, but Endicott is countering with another bluff, and they can make it stick. Their auditing department knows just how to do that. So every colonist who wants to go on wildcatting now has to bring a few cylinders home to make it look as if he'd bought them outright. Possession puts you nine-tenths on the winning side in any legal argument. You ought to know that. Ought I? Just suppose I did. Would that stop me from becoming terrified when I know exactly what could happen if, if the metal isn't as cool as you hope it will be when you slap your hand on it and the window police stay cold-blooded about it and wait around for the fissionable material inside to reach critical mass? You know damn well it would take an awful lot of accidental jarring and jolting to trigger a fuel cylinder and make it blow up. It probably couldn't happen except in a laboratory where they're careless about such things because of overconfidence. Dinner's on the table, the woman said. We may as well go back into the house while we've still got a home and gather the children around us and tell them a few more lies about what the future is going to be like in the colony now that one father and three will be bringing nuclear fuel cylinders home with him. The man, his name was John Linton, nodded, and they returned into the prefab. Linton preceded his wife into the dwelling, and the woman paused for an instant in the doorway to stare back at the long metal shed where the six cylinders were reposing. 
letting her gaze take in as well the double row of foot-high cactus plants which encircled the yard and the sun-reddened stretch of open desert beyond then she let the door swing shut behind her and turned to face her four hungry children one thought alone sustained grace linton at that moment there had never been any need so far for the children to go to bed hungry their hunger was due solely to the demands of healthy young appetites when dinner was a little delayed and they had been playing strenuously in the yard all afternoon or going on exploring expeditions End of chapter 11